May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts always be accepted in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Well, it's good to be back with you. It's been a while, but I'm honored to have this opportunity to uh, be at a place that feels a lot like home when I'm here. And uh, so thank you for your hospitality and, and this uh, chance to be with you. My name is John Davis, and um, I'm actually now um, on staff with a ministry called Fresh Expressions. And uh, I'm going to mention a little bit about that in my sermon uh, here. But uh, so a little change since the last time uh, for you as well as for me since the last time I was here. You know, um, as I was sort of thinking about this, uh, sort of this getting into this topic, we're going to be looking at the letter, the epistle from Hebrews, by the way. So if you want to reference that uh, throughout our throughout the sermon, um, you know, I was thinking about it. You know, I really I'm I enjoy college football. I don't know about you. It's the one sport that I follow with enthusiasm. Now, I follow the Braves and things like that, but I just don't do with as much enthusiasm. I mean, they're down 0-2 in the uh, divisional series, so it's it's just, we'll see. I mean, in the 90s, it was easy to be a Braves fan, uh, kind of thing, such. But the one, but being from Georgia, too, I followed University of Georgia, the Bulldogs, and it helps that the fact that Beth and I have had nine different English Bulldogs. Um, you know, we've done a lot of rescues of English Bulldogs, so we have a, you know, sort of an allegiance there, if you will. And so it really grieves me to say this. The Alabama Crimson Tide <laughs> is really a superior team. I know, I know, I know. They're superior on offense, defense, special teams, coaching, recruiting. They dominate the field of play when they take the field. They are a powerhouse. I know the season's not over, and I know this whole adage about, you know, well, any day any team can beat another team, and I know that's true, and I hope that's true for Alabama, to be honest. But right now... They're really the best college football team, top to bottom. I think there are several NFL teams they could take on. You know, top to bottom, inside and out, they are on top. It won't always be that way, right? But for the last few years, it's been that way, and it looks like at least this year it's going to continue. And I say all that because there's there's an ebb and flow to these things, right? You know, there's sometimes, you know, Florida had a few good years back not that long ago when they were on top, and Georgia's been a while, but they had a good year last year. I'm hoping for a good year this year. There's an ebb and flow to those kinds of things. But for now, get used to Alabama. I say all that to say this. Hebrews is a letter that is written exalting the superiority of Christ over everything. He is superior to the law, to the angels, to the prophets, to Moses. A superior covenant, a superior priesthood. There is no ebb and flow. Jesus will always be superior. Jesus will always be on top. And the Christology of Hebrews, that's a nice theological word, the Christology of Hebrews, that is the study of Christ that Hebrews gives us, is amazingly rich and unique. Hebrews has a creedal character to it as it tells the story of Jesus. The Gospels tell the story with history and narrative and, you know, as these encounters that Jesus had and the, the progress of his life. Hebrews tells the story of Jesus really with this creedal character, guiding us through doctrines about revelation, about creation, providence, sin, about salvation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, about the Christian life and the consummation of the kingdom of God. It's not history, it's not narrative, but it it gives us information, needed information, 
for us as we walk with Jesus. Hebrews makes Jesus this, the singular thread throughout all of salvation history. Only the one who has created the world can redeem the world. I have a good friend, Mike Atkins, and I was just with him a couple weeks ago. He's a pastor. He's got a rough gig. He's a pastor of a church in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And uh, so in, in the back, I love this. Whenever I'm in his church, and I was there a few weeks ago, the back of his windows are the Tetons. So I, I always say, I guess you'll really never need stained glass, will you, Mike? And he's, he agrees with that, and I agree with, with that, too, from having been there. Years ago, he did a DVD series, and some of you might have seen it, called The Centrality of the Cross. And in that, actually, Reverend Sarah and I were there when he was recorded. It was recorded at Calvary Assembly. And um, there's one of the teachings he does on the cross as the salvation of sinners. And he says four things happen for us on the cross. And this comes a lot from the doctrine of Hebrews. But four things happen for us. There are a lot of things, but four things he highlights that happen for us because of the cross. And so the first word is another theological term. We would call it propitiation. And that is that the wrath of God towards sin was satisfied. And so that, that, the idea of sin being a blockage in our relationship, God, that was dealt with fully. Notice, you could sort of say it this way, you know, the, in the Old Testament, the sheep of, of goats and bulls and, and such was a covering for sin, right? They would cover sin. But John the Baptist, in his, when he announces Jesus, he says something very unique. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And that's what propitiation is. It's the sin being dealt with in that way. It is also, there's a, a, a marketplace term we could look at. It's redemption. That our lives are redeemed. We are purchased back to God. The price was paid to bring humanity back to God. So there's a marketplace term that happens for us. Um, and then there's justification. There's a legal term here. That we are justified. That when God looks at us and we are in Christ, He sees the righteousness of Christ upon us. That I remember, I heard it, heard it years ago, that if you are justified before God, it's just as if you'd never sinned. Right? And finally, there's a, a, a relational term, reconciliation. Those of us who were far off, those who, of us who were sort of distant from God, are reconciled to God and we're brought close. The barriers that were there between God and us are no longer exist because of the cross and what Jesus did. I am truly saved. I'm redeemed. I'm justified. Sin has been dealt with and I'm reconciled to God. And that's the power of the cross. And that's what Hebrews begins to detail for us, even in this first uh, reading that we have from chapter 1 and 2. What Jesus has done for us through the cross. It makes me think of the, one of my favorite hymns, one of the choruses of it, one of the verses of it. My bliss, oh the... My, I'm sorry, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And we should rejoice in that. We should, we should be excited about that because our salvation touches every aspect of our lives. And we truly walk away, different people, a new creation. The one who for a little while was made lower than the angels is now crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. And the cross points us to the end of time, to the consummation of God's kingdom and God's purposes for all of creation. There's coming a day, beloved, 
There's coming a day when there will be no more death or disease, no more pain or suffering, no more sorrow, no more tears. And oh, what a day that will be. In this life, I think all of us are yearning and searching for an authentic, passionate Jesus. This is at the heart of our hunger. Hebrews unveils this Jesus to us. A real, tangible, touchable Jesus. It is the Word became flesh. And I love how the message, sort of paraphrased version says it. The Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Christ has come. Jesus is the real thing, the authentic pioneer of God, as our passage says. And He's mediating the glory of God in the flesh and blood experiences of earthly life. Hebrews tells us, tells us of an utterly majestic and cosmic God that is within reach, coming to be up close and, princ- and personal. He's no longer a distant God on a thundering mountaintop somewhere. He's no longer a God that is behind the temple veil. I love this word, and this comes out of the uh, work I'm doing with Fresh Expressions. I've heard, I've heard it before, but it's sort of been brought back to me in this time. That with this, with God, there is a withness to his character. A withness with us. Wherever we go, if we think about the Romans 8, and lots of times it's a familiar passage, but the part where it says that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. He is with us always. We need to realize that Hebrews was written to a second generation group of Christians. Believers who were removed a little bit from the intensity and the intimacy and the passion of those early years. They are living with the pressures of a materialistic, even a violent world bearing down on them. These folks had become weary. They'd become discouraged, even apathetic in their faith. Sadly, I think many of us can probably relate to that. We've had a fading cultural Christianity over the last 50 years in this nation. Numbers are declining. The church's voice is being ignored. It leads, I think, to a spiritual version of chronic fatigue syndrome. We get weary. Hebrews is written to reignite our faith, to remind us of who God is and who Jesus is, reminding us of amazing grace that has come to us. God's very imprint in us through Christ. We are not alone. We are not forsaken. You know, in this new role that I have, I'm doing some speaking and consulting with churches. And I can say this, that, that a lot of the what I see or, and hear especially is, oh, we want to go back to what the church used to be, right? We want to go back to where everyone went to church on Sunday mornings, the good old days, right? I was actually in this church in 1978. I was with a mission team, and so I've told that story some when I've been here. And it was quite full. Yeah. I know you've been through a lot. I know there have been some challenges in recent years. But it's not just what's happened here. But if you look throughout the landscape of the church, there's been steady decline for 40, 50 years. It's just the reality of the world in which we're living. We're really living in a post-Christian world. Last year, I was looking before Fresh Expression sort of came on the scene for me. I was looking at, you know, maybe becoming a rector. And putting, I put my name, I went through two search processes, but more than that, I read probably 75 plus profiles of churches that were looking for a priest. 
and just sort of looking and say, well, is this, could this be and that sort of thing. And the thing that was amazing on every single profile and the questions that I got when I went through an interview process, it was, there were, this would always come up. And in some way or another, they all said this. We want a priest who will bring in young families and children, right? That's what we all want. That's what we want. We want to sort of go back to those days. And, and the reality is all of them said that in one way or another. And I'll go ahead and say it this way. This might get me in a little trouble. They want to make the church great again, right? That's what, that's sort of the desire. We want to go back to what it used to be like. And I understand that. I grew up in, in that era. I grew up in the charismatic renewal and life and things were happening. It was wonderful. It was rich time. But the more I think about our culture, we've really come to a place where we're in an uncharted territory. A book that has really influenced me, and I would commend it to you, is a book by Todd Bolsinger called Canoeing the Mountains, right? And he takes a cue, takes sort of a, a using the narrative, using the story of Lewis and Clark. Lewis and Clark pushed off from St. Louis. They had two mission objectives. They were to explore the Louisiana Purchase, and they were to find a waterway to the Pacific. Right? You know this story? Right? You know about Lewis and Clark? So they push off from St. Louis, and about ten months later, they ran out of water. And they had a choice to make. Oh, we're done. Turn around and go back. Or, as they looked west, and they're somewhere at this point in what we'd call eastern Montana, and they look west and they see the Rockies. And none of them had ever seen anything like the Rockies before. And as far as they could see, north to south were these snow-capped peaks that looked massive and huge. As I said, I was just in Jackson Hole, and so I, I, when I have that picture, I'm thinking of the Tetons that, have, that are just massive mountains. And they made a decision. They stopped being river rafters, and they became mountain climbers. And there's a lot of things about, leader, about how they could teach us some things about leadership in an uncharted territory. But, but the point is this that I'll make this morning is that the church is in an uncharted territory. What has brought the church to where it is today in the culture will carry it no further. We've run out of water. And we need to adapt and change and think about what it is to be the church in the 21st century. I'll say it this way. What worked in the 20th century for the church will not work in our day and age. That's the reality of this. And, and so, you know, I think as, as the writer of Hebrews is writing, he's writing to encourage people to remind them of their faith. You know, there's, I guess another way to say this is there's been an exodus and we're in this post-Christian culture. We can't look back to what was and go back there. But the good news, beloved, is that the Lord would want us to look forward. To, to set our eyes on Him. To see Him and, and to see a promised land that He's leading us to. A new way to be the church that Jesus always intended. I think, as I think and research and read about this stuff, it looks a lot like the book of Acts. You know, going into the marketplace, going into the culture, going into the world where it is with the, with the gospel itself. It'll mean change. It will look different. But it will be the kingdom come and his will be done. It will be a fresh expression of church. 
And I can tell you that I've come to this point in my life. And I could have coasted. I could have found a church, I'm sure, and gone somewhere and just sort of like coasted into retirement and preached some and do some. I've got skills. I could do all that sort of stuff. But I, I'm telling you this now. I stand before you saying this, that I'm giving my life to this moment and to this movement of fresh expressions, to see a fresh expression of church in the world. And I hope you will too. That you'll join this adventure. I'll be so bold to say it this way. Part, maybe one way to describe this work. You know, I don't want people to come to church. I don't want people to go to church. I want people to be the church in the world. That's what Jesus commissioned us to be and to do. We're to go to, into all the world. And it's actually, when we think about the Great Commission, going is saying, as you're going, that's really the better translation, as you're going about your life, as you are going to the marketplace, as you are going to work, as you're going to school, where, as you're going, wherever you go, make disciples. That's the call that we have. The mission of the church is all because of Jesus. So back to Hebrews here. It, Hebrews is really doxology. It functions as a verbal Eucharist. You know, we think of the Eucharist as just the sacrament. Eucharist means thanksgiving, the great thanksgiving. And it really, Hebrews is a verbal Eucharist for us. Giving thanks to God and praise, reminding us of who God is and beholding how great a salvation He has given to us, His people. These words are powerful. These spoken words are powerful. The speaking God did in the past brought the cosmos into being. As our passage says, God spoke to us through the prophets. But that, that speaking brought the world into being and, and established the old covenant. But the speaking God's done in Christ brings salvation and brings the kingdom. In the Reformed tradition, the Word takes the central role in worship. Preaching becomes the place of encounter with the majesty of God. Pulpits, if you've walked into a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church, pulpits are at the center and are elevated in that design. I agree with that, but I also want to say there's more. Word and sacrament. This revelation, this word become flesh, this very Jesus himself invites us and lifts us up to partake of him, to share with him. You know, think of uh, this with me, this part of the liturgy, and I know you'll know it. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Right? That sursum, that's called the sursum corda in the, in the liturgy. That sursum corda is part of what happens as we hear the word of God, as, as we get a chance to respond to the word of God. We are lifted very, just absolutely and completely into the presence of God. And we share that outward visible sign and inward spiritual grace of holy communion. We lift up our collective heart together as God's people, as the church. And we glimpse eternity in that moment. Communion becomes a thin place, thinking of sort of Celtic spirituality, a thin place where heaven and earth meet, where eternity and time come together. The ministry of the word Preparing our hearts to receive the ministry of the sacrament. See, we need Hebrews. We need this letter. I would commend, we'll be reading it over the next few weeks in the, in the lectionary. But I commend you to maybe renew yourself with this, with this text. All of Hebrews. All, every chapter. 
because we'll be skipping some parts here and there. Read through it. As it peppers and seasons our liturgical banquet. That is our worship and our understanding of who God is. It, it seasons it with the incarnation, the life, the ministry, the passion, the death, the cross, the resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. You know, I, I was sort of bringing this to a close. We cannot escape the reality that something has gone wrong in the world, can we? Something's wrong in the cosmos. That God, and only God, can set it right. And He sets it right in Jesus. By the cross and His resurrection. Things will still go wrong today, right? Our lives are caught up in the seemingly unending moment, unending tale of human subjection to sin. The whole created order is caught in this tension. The planet seems to be in such turmoil and sin seems rampant on a global scale. But there's coming a day. There's coming a day. And Hebrews points us there, drawing us all to the story of our salvation. Despite all that has gone wrong in the cosmos, God's love in Christ is sufficient. And superior in every way. If we believe it, if we live into it, it banishes our weariness and yields utter and complete joy. Beloved, that is gospel. That is good news. And so we long for that day, for the coming of the kingdom in fullness, for the consummation of the kingdom of God. Another verse from that hymn. And Lord, haste the day. When the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul.